Once upon a time, there was a king who ruled over everything in a land. And one day there was a gardener who grew an enormous carrot. And he took it to his king and said, My lord, this is the greatest carrot I have ever grown or will ever grow. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. And the king was touched and discerned his heart. And so as he turned to go, the king said, Wait, you are clearly a good steward of the earth. I want to give a plot of land to you freely as a gift so that you can garden it all. And the gardener was amazed and delighted and went home rejoicing. But there was a nobleman in the king's court who overheard all of this and he said to himself, my, if that's what you get for a carrot, what if you gave the king something better? The next day the nobleman came before the king and he was leading a handsome black stallion. And he bowed low and said, my Lord, I breed horses and this is the greatest horse I've ever bred or ever will breed. Therefore, I wanna give it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. But the king discerned his heart and said, thank you, and took the horse and simply dismissed him. And the nobleman was perplexed having just given him his finest horse. Why would the king give him nothing in return? The king said, let me explain. That gardener was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. You've heard it said, love keeps no record of wrongs, but I think it's also true that kindness, true kindness, keeps no record of rights. True kindness doesn't say, what's in it for me? True kindness doesn't say, hey, in the future, you better remember what I did for you. True kindness is, doesn't expect anything in return. True kindness is motivated by love and compassion and grace. It's an overflow of the heart. And kindness flies in the face of duty, going far above and beyond it. If you haven't already, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Ruth chapter 2 where we'll see glimmers of light begin to creep into this dark story as Naomi and Ruth are confronted with the kindness of a godly man named Boaz. But before we dig in, let's pray and ask God to help us understand his word this morning. Lord God, may we behold wondrous things from your holy, inspired, inerrant word your word which speaks truth, your word which gives light, your word which brings life. Come now, Lord God, and give us understanding and open our eyes to see Christ this morning. Amen. So last week we began in the book of Ruth and read about how in the days when the judges ruled, which was a spiritually and morally dark time in Israel, a couple named Elimelech and Naomi leave their hometown of Bethlehem with their two sons during a famine to sojourn in Moab. And their sons Malon and Kilion marry Moabite women named Ruth and Orpah, but later Elimelech and both of his sons die, leaving Naomi 
Ruth and Orpah as widows. And then Naomi decides to return to Bethlehem, but she urges Ruth and Orpah to remain in Moab where they'd be able to find husbands and just continue with their lives. So Orpah returns to Moab, but Ruth, surprisingly, clings to Naomi and decides to follow her back to Bethlehem. And she says, your people will be my people and your God will be my God. So they return and the last verse of chapter one says that they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. The famine is over. Barley is ready to be harvested. This is a little glimmer of light that begins to peek through the clouds of this dark, dark story. And now we come to chapter two, which begins in verse one. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Now in the back of our minds, after reading chapter one, we know that Ruth is without a husband. And so the author in presenting this worthy man, Boaz, at the beginning of chapter two might be hinting at something. Maybe Boaz will be another little glimmer of light. But wait a minute. Naomi had given the impression back in chapter one that there was no point in Ruth coming back with her to Bethlehem because there would be nobody there for her to marry. But one of the very first things that happens when they return to Bethlehem is that a man emerges from the story and he's a near relative of Naomi's deceased husband, Elimelech. Now, in Israel, there was a law that when a husband died, it was the expected duty of one of his unmarried brothers to marry his childless widow and to have children to continue the family line and the family name. It was called leveret marriage. Now, technically, a leveret marriage would only apply to Ruth's situation if her deceased husband, Malon, had a brother who would then marry her. And Malon's only brother, Kilion, was dead too. So leveret marriage didn't apply to Ruth's situation. But, though it's not explicitly stated, we can infer from the text that there must have been some kind of cultural custom, which wasn't a law, but what was like leveret marriage, where a related kinsman, a relative, would marry a childless widow in the family. And so it seems that Naomi had this cultural custom, which was like leveret marriage, in mind when she told Ruth and Orpah back in chapter one, there is nobody for you back in Bethlehem. She wasn't just saying that she had no other sons, she was saying that she had no related kinsmen, no other relatives at all in Bethlehem that might, according to this cultural custom, marry Ruth and Orpah. Which has me asking the question, how had Naomi forgotten about Boaz? Here's what I think happened. Naomi's exaggerated hopelessness, which we talked about last week, caused her to be so focused on her own suffering that she forgot about Boaz and had blinded her eyes that she couldn't see any glimmers of light which were beginning to creep into her dark providence. 
God brought the harvest to Bethlehem after a long famine. And God gave faith to Ruth and moved her heart to cling to Naomi. And God had preserved the kinsman Boaz and in his providence had kept him a single unmarried man. All glimmers of light. But Naomi was so embittered that she couldn't and wouldn't look past her suffering to see any glimmers of light. She couldn't and wouldn't see what God was doing. She couldn't and wouldn't remember her relative Boaz. But continuing on in verses two and three. And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor or grace. And Naomi said to her, go, my daughter. So Ruth set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. So firstly, the author reminds us that Ruth is the Moabite, which is a very important detail. It's repeated three times in this chapter. She's a foreigner. She's an outsider. And she hopes that someone will show her favor or grace and allow her to glean in their field. And to understand what gleaning was, there was another law in Israel which said that when landowners were reaping the harvest of their field, so their wheat, their barley, their grapes, their corn, they were to leave the very edges of their field unharvested so that the foreigner the widow, the orphan, and the poor, all of the vulnerable and disregarded in society could come into the field and glean, gather the unharvested leftovers for themselves so that they could survive. This was a way that God in his kindness gave through his people to those who were in need. And we're told in verse three that Ruth went out to glean and just so happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, Naomi's relative. And here the author is being intentionally sarcastic. He's playing with us a bit. His words are meant to create the exact opposite impression because, of course, nothing just so happens to come about. Remember, I said this last week, this whole story is about God's providence, how God is sovereignly orchestrating all things according to his purpose and plan. Ruth didn't just so happen to come upon, of all fields, the field belonging to Boaz. What can be said, however, is that from Ruth's perspective, that she would end up in Boaz's field was something unknown to her. From her perspective, she just so happened to find herself there, but from God's eternal providential perspective, Ruth was right where he wanted her. And then we come to verse four. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. It was just one coincidence after another. Behold, Boaz came to the field. In the Hebrew, this word behold is written in the form of a sudden exclamation of surprise. 
the author is sarcastically saying something like, and wouldn't you know it? Would you look at that? Boaz came to the field. So not only did Ruth just so happen to come to the right place, she just so happened to come at the right time. Who planned this? Was it Ruth? Was it Boaz? The author's playing with us again. Now, throughout this chapter, if we're going to really understand the kind of man Boaz is, we have to remember the context in which this story takes place. These were the days when the judges ruled and Israel had no king and everyone just did what was right in his own eyes. These were the days when nobody was going to come after you if you did something wrong. But against this backdrop, we see a landowner emerge from the shadows of this dark story who greets his workers not with the common Hebrew greeting, shalom, peace be with you, but who greets his workers using the covenant name of God saying, Yahweh imakem, the Lord be with you. The author wants us to see that in this spiritually and morally dark context that some people are actually living countercultural for the Lord. And Boaz is one of these people. Verses five through seven. Then Boaz said to his young man, or foreman, who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now except for a short rest. So everyone took notice of Ruth, the young Moabite, when she came to Bethlehem. She was different. One commentator said that she would have been like an African-American woman who was brought to Alabama in the 1930s by her white mother-in-law. And when Boaz asks in verse five, whose young woman is this? Notice that the foreman replies with a redundancy in verse six. He says, she is the young Moabite woman from Moab to clearly communicate, this is Moab's woman. She belongs to Moab, which is perhaps another way of saying she doesn't belong here. But look at verse seven. It tells us two things about Ruth, the Moabite's character. Number one, Ruth is humble. She asks permission to glean in Boaz's field. But what's weird about that? It was her right to glean in anyone's field. It was the law. Nevertheless, she asks. She is polite. She is humble, and she knows her place in their eyes as an outsider. Number two, Ruth is a hard worker. Gleaning was hard work. And the foreman tells Boaz she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. And later on in verse 17, it says that she gleaned in the field until evening, and after working literally all day, she had gleaned an ephah of barley. 
an ephah, that's around 40 pounds of little barley kernels. Ruth was diligent and no labor was beneath her. And in kindness, she was doing this not just for herself, but for Naomi. Verses eight and nine. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Here we see a demonstration of true kindness from Boaz. What did the gleaning laws require of Boaz? Only that he allow gleaners to pick up the leftovers in his field. But what did Boaz do for Ruth? In kindness, he went above and beyond the law to provide for her and to protect her. Boaz says to Ruth, don't leave, stay here, and you can drink our water too. The workdays were long and hot. Gleaners needed to be constantly finding water so that they didn't become dehydrated. And, and Boaz says to Ruth, don't go out to find water, just, just have ours. And Boaz says, I've told the young men not to lay a single hand on you. So apparently gleaning was dangerous for women. And yeah, if you think about it, if you're a foreign unmarried woman out in the middle of a huge field, who knows who you might encounter or what might happen. And what makes this situation even more dangerous for Ruth is that remember at this time, in this historical context, there really was nobody around to enforce the law. If Ruth had been violated or taken advantage of, who would she run to for help? It was a dark and dangerous time in Israel's history. And this is what makes Boaz's kindness all the more remarkable. Not only is Boaz obeying the laws in Israel, but he is going above and beyond the law to kindly bless Ruth with provision and protection. So how does Ruth respond to Boaz's kindness? Verses 10 through 13. Then Ruth fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to Boaz, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor or grace in your eyes, my Lord for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. Notice the humility and reverence in Ruth's response to Boaz's kindness. She falls to the ground, bowing before him, and then just like Psalm 8-4 says, who am I that you would notice me? What is man that you are mindful of him, Lord? One commentator said, the one who came seeking Israel's God had, for the first time, been made to feel that there might be a place for her among the followers of God. 
perhaps through Boaz, Ruth was beginning to feel like one of God's people. And then Boaz tells Ruth that he took notice of her not simply because she was a Moabite in Bethlehem, but because of the kind of woman she was and because she was a sister in the Lord and because Boaz loved God and took refuge under his wings. He loved God's people and would become God's protective wings to Ruth. And Boaz's kindness continues, verse 14. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. In the Bible, eating together is always a sign of fellowship. And even today, eating is about more than just food. It's about spending time with others and enjoying their company. And at mealtime, Boaz desires fellowship with Ruth and treats her like a member of his own family and gives her not just enough food, but more than enough food. Verses 15 and 16. And when she rose, uh, and when she rose to go back out to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some of the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So Boaz instructs his workers to let Ruth glean with them among the sheaves, and not to say anything that would deter her and also to pull out some of the bundles of barley for her and to leave them on the ground so that she could pick them up. Verses 17 through 19. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening, and she beat out what she had gleaned, separating the kernels from the husks, and it was about an ephah of barley, around 40 pounds. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law, Naomi, saw what she had gleaned, Ruth also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man with whom I worked today is Boaz. Naomi was astonished that Ruth returned with so much food. One commentator said, the gleaning of fallen grain was mere subsistence living, much like trying to eke out survival today by recycling aluminum cans. And Ruth returned with 40 pounds of barley and the leftovers for mealtime. They could survive on that for a month. And Naomi's whole attitude began to change. Remember at the end of chapter one, we were left with a bitter woman who was saying, don't call me Naomi, don't call me pleasant. Call me Mara, for the Lord has made me bitter. But now she excitedly asks, where in the world did you glean? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Who was it? And what a shock it must have been to Naomi to discover that in God's providence, the man with whom Ruth worked was her own relative, Boaz. Naomi had forgotten about Boaz. But God was faithful even when Naomi was forgetful. 
And in the midst of Naomi's exaggerated hopelessness, God would remind her that with him, there's always hope. Verses 20 through 23. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, you shall keep close to my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother-in-law. So Naomi praised God for his kindness, his chesed, which is a loyal kindness, a faithful kindness, a covenant kindness, chesed. Naomi praised God for his chesed through Boaz, which had blessed their whole family, the living, Ruth and Naomi herself, and the dead, Elimelech, Malon, and Kilion. And what does, it, what does it mean that God's chesed through Boaz had not forsaken the living or the dead? Well, how could the dead be said to be blessed but through the continuation of the family line and the family name? I think Naomi's joyful response was hinting at the fact that she was thinking that Boaz was a potential husband for Ruth. In Naomi's mind, Boaz was a glimmer of light peeking through the clouds, and maybe, just maybe, in hindsight, she was beginning to see all the other glimmers of light that she hadn't seen along the way, and how all the pieces of God's providence were finally coming together. Next week, when we look at chapter three, we'll talk more about what it means that um, Boaz was one of their redeemers. But look at the last line of the chapter. The barley harvest came and went, and Ruth is still living with her mother-in-law. Why would the author state the obvious? Why would the chapter close with that comment? this simple remark highlights the fact that Ruth still does not have a husband. And chapter two leaves us wondering, will Boaz, this kind and gracious man, seemingly perfect for Ruth, continue to be a part of Ruth's story? Or will he just be a character who fades into the background like Elimelech and Malon and Kilion? Is there any hope that Boaz will continue to show kindness to Ruth, and perhaps in a big way? This chapter should perhaps have us asking some other questions as well, like, are we kind like Boaz? Do we show kindness like Boaz? Do we show kindness to others foreigners, widows, orphans, and the poor in our community, in our neighborhood, or right here in this church? 
Are we kind to others without counting the cost to ourselves? Are we kind to others without keeping a record of our rights toward them? Are we kind to others just to be kind, not expecting anything in return? Does our kindness ever go above and beyond duty? I know if I'm being honest with myself, the answer to all of those questions for me would be no, not always. And so there are a couple ways I could end this sermon this morning. I could end this sermon by saying, let's all be more like Boaz. Let's pray. The moralizing, be like this person sermon. But if I end this sermon today with that message, here's an example of someone who was kind. Now you, be kind. If I end this sermon today with that message, then I promise you, you most likely will leave this room this morning completely unchanged. My goal for us as a church and as Christians is not strict conformation. Do this, do this, do that. Don't do this, don't do that. But true transformation of heart. And I can't end this sermon today with that message because the truth is you and I on our own cannot be truly kind. You and I on our own cannot be truly kind. Now I know what some of you are thinking because I can see it on your face right now. What are you talking about? <laughs> I want to be kind. Are you telling me that I cannot do what I want to do? Let me make three points. Number one, on our own, by nature, we don't want to be truly kind. On our own, by nature, we don't want to be truly kind. By nature, we are sometimes willing to be kind to other people, but only if we think it will benefit us in some way. Only if they, in return, will appreciate us, celebrate us, say thank you to us, or tell someone about what we did for them to make us feel good about ourselves, to make us feel like we're good people, to make us feel like we ought to be admired, valued, honored, respected. But that's not true kindness. That's pride disguised as kindness. By nature, we are sometimes willing to be kind to other people, but only if we think that our kindness toward them will make them be kind to us. But that's not true kindness. That's actually manipulation and control disguised as kindness. By nature, we're sometimes willing to be kind to, to other people, but not without first counting the cost to ourselves. Okay, how much damage is this gonna do to my wallet? How much of my time is this gonna eat up? How much of my energy is this gonna take? What is this going to do to my reputation? But that's not true kindness. That's selfishness disguised as kindness. 
by nature, we're sometimes willing to be kind to other people, but only to build up our personal record of rights toward them, like deposits into our imaginary piggy bank of good deeds. But that's not true kindness, that's also pride, disguised as kindness. By nature, we are by nature, we are masters at disguising our pride, selfishness, and manipulation and control as kindness. By nature, we are masters at using disguised kindness to make us feel good about ourselves, to manipulate people to benefit ourselves, to get things for ourselves and to build up our record of rights and to keep puffing up our imaginary piggy bank of good deeds. We have all done this, I still do this. How often does our kindness in some way reflect the nobleman in the king's court who brought the king his finest horse but was really only giving it to himself? But maybe you're saying, well, regardless, I still want to be kind. The Bible tells me to be kind. My teachers told me to be kind. My parents told me to be kind. My conscience tells me to be kind. It's just the right thing to do. Point number two, true kindness goes beyond the law. You cannot be truly kind out of a sense of duty. True kindness goes beyond the law you cannot be truly kind out of a sense of duty. Think about it for a second. If I do something kind for someone and they ask me, why would you do this for me? And I just say, well, just fulfilling the requirements of the law. <laughs> How impersonal is that? <laughs> that's not kind of me. That, that's not compassionate of me. That's not gracious of me, that's not truly kind of me. A sense of duty has eyes fixed on the law, but true kindness has a heart fixed on others. Think about Boaz. There was no law that required Boaz to welcome Ruth as he did. There was no law that required Boaz to say, stay here in my field, don't go glean anywhere else. There was no law that required Boaz to let, Drew, uh, let Ruth drink his water when she was thirsty. There was no law that required Boaz to make extra efforts to protect Ruth. There was no law that required Boaz to invite Ruth to his table for a meal. There was no law that required Boaz to let Ruth glean among his own harvesters and to tell them to pull out some of the bundles of barley for her. There was no law that required Boaz to encourage Ruth's heart. Boaz is such a wonderful example of true kindness, not because he was obedient to the law, but because over and over again we see him going above and beyond the law to bless Ruth in loving, compassionate, and gracious ways. For Boaz, kindness was a function not of duty in his mind, but of love in his heart. And I bet Boaz probably just found himself being kind without really thinking about it at all. 
For Boaz, kindness just happened. It was an overflow of his heart. He didn't force it. He didn't create it. He didn't plan it. It just happened. So how does it happen? Point number three, true kindness is a fruit of the Spirit. True kindness is a fruit of the Spirit. The reason Galatians chapter five says that love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control are all fruit is because they are things that are produced and grow within us. They're not naturally there. And they are of the Spirit, meaning the Spirit produces and grows them, not us. And the Apostle Paul even says, after listing the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, that against such things there is no law, meaning you cannot get them through the law, through good works, through duty. Again, point number two, you cannot be truly kind out of a sense of duty. So a final question to be answered is this. How can we be kind like Boaz? How can we get true kindness? We can get true kindness, the sort of kindness that isn't dependent upon how it will make us feel or how it will benefit us or how it will cause other people to treat us or how it will look in our imaginary piggy bank of good deeds when our hearts are changed. And our hearts are changed when we worship like Boaz did, the one who was perfectly kind. The one who, like Boaz, blessed with the name of Yahweh on his lips, the Lord be with you, and who was just that, God with us, Emmanuel. The one who, like Boaz, went beyond the requirements of the law to welcome the foreigner, the widow, the orphan, and the poor, and who also welcomed the spiritual foreigner, the spiritual widow, the spiritual orphan, and the spiritually poor. All those who were estranged from the protection, comfort, life and hope of God. The one who, like Boaz, said, stay with me, don't go anywhere else to find food, and who also said, I am the bread of life, and whoever comes to me shall not hunger. The one who, like Boaz, said, drink my water, and who also said, whoever drinks of the water I will give him will never be thirsty again. The one who, like Boaz, protects those he loves and takes them under his wings like a hen gathers her chicks. The one who, like Boaz, invites the ones he loves to sit with him at his banqueting table and who gives them not just enough, but more than enough. The one who, like Boaz, treats us like one of his own and then brings us into his family so that we become his own. In Boaz, we see a picture of Jesus. 
Jesus, who came to give the foreigner a home in heaven, the widow a husband in himself, the orphan a father in God, and the poor immeasurable riches of his kindness and grace. But Jesus' kindness toward his loved ones largely earned him no appreciation, no thank you, no public recognition. Jesus' kindness towards his loved ones was largely unreciprocated in return. Jesus' kindness towards his loved ones didn't count the cost, yet cost him everything. And Jesus' kindness toward his loved ones did nothing to perfect his own personal record of righteousness because he was already perfect, but would actually be given a way to cover the personal record of unrighteousness for all who would turn from their sin and trust in him. Jesus' kindness was never prideful, never selfish, never manipulative or controlling. In fact, Jesus' kindness is the greatest demonstration of humility and generosity and freedom-giving power that the world has ever seen or known. In kindness, Jesus left his home to come into our land, not running away from death like Naomi and Ruth, but running to death. He lived among us, yet remained untainted and untouched by our sin. He lived the sinless and perfect life that you and I ought to live before the holy God, but cannot. And then in kindness, instead of receiving what he deserved, he took upon himself all that we deserved, all that our lifetime of sin and our shriveled hearts had earned us, the just wrath of God and death. He was crucified for our sin and then buried in a tomb but rose three days later proving that he was who he claimed to be, conquering the powers of Satan and our sin and our death. And then Jesus ascended into heaven where he promised to prepare a place for his people and to come back to bring them to be with him forever. And today, Jesus is now seated at the right hand of God the Father, pleading their cause and praying kindness, praying chesed, loyal kindness, faithful kindness, covenant kindness over them. And for all who will turn away from their sin and trust in Jesus for salvation, not only will he forgive all their sin and cover them with his righteousness, but he will give them his kindness and come to dwell in them by his spirit and produce kindness in them. If you haven't already trusted in Jesus, you're gonna have to run on duty. You're gonna have to fix your eyes on the law and try to be good enough for God and try your best to be kind to people. But even in the acts of kindness that you do accomplish, well, your heart for God won't be in it. And to some degree, your heart for others won't truly be in it either. So you can fix your eyes on the law or you can fix your heart on Jesus and receive his kindness and true kindness will begin to pour out from your heart to bless others. And the kindness of Jesus 
will begin to radically change you so that by God's grace, when you give someone a gift or send someone a nice text message or do something helpful for someone and they show no appreciation, give no thank you, don't tell anybody about what you did for them, you won't even think twice about it. So that by God's grace, when you show kindness to someone in some way, but that person doesn't reciprocate the same kindness toward you, you will be able to continue to show kindness to them and won't even think twice about it. So that by God's grace, when you show kindness to someone in some way at some great cost to you, whether your money or your resources or your time or your energy, you won't even think twice about it. So that by God's grace, when you show kindness to someone in some way, you won't even think twice about such a thing as a imaginary piggy bank of good deeds or a record of rights toward them. By God's grace, your kindness won't be motivated by pride or selfishness or manipulation and control, but by love, compassion, and grace, just like Boaz and just like Jesus himself. You won't have to do things to feel good about yourself because you'll know that you're already approved by God in Christ. Do you want that? You won't have to manipulate people to benefit yourself because you'll be able to love with Christ's love. Do you want that? You won't have to try to get things out of others for yourself because you'll know that in Christ you have all things. Do you want that? And you won't have to try to build up your record of rights or your imaginary piggy bank of good deeds because you'll know that you already, you're already considered righteous in the eyes of God because you have been covered with Christ's righteousness. The righteousness you have is not your own. Do you want that? In chapter two of the book of Ruth, we see a wonderful picture of true kindness in Boaz. But what Naomi and Ruth needed more than Boaz's kindness and more than a husband for Ruth was perfect kindness, a heavenly protector, a heavenly provider, and a heavenly husband to rescue them from their sin and to give them refuge under his wings. And if you want true kindness that isn't compelled by duty, but is compelled by genuine love, know that Jesus' kindness for you and in you is what will free you to be truly kind. Let's pray. Lord God, I ask that you would lay these truths upon our hearts. Lord God, that you are the greatest provision, our greatest protection, our heavenly husband, the one who rescues us from our sin and brings us into your family and calls us his sons and daughters and frees us by the grace and presence and power of Christ to be truly kind. Lord God, help us to look to you and to live for you, to love you, 
and to show that love to the world. We ask this in your name. Amen.